It's been said that how you see something reflects in how you respond to it. How you see someone often is reflected in how you treat them. For example, if you see that someone is weak or frail, someone can be taken advantage of, then you have a greater propensity to want to take advantage of them, to belittle them. If they, on the other hand, instead project strength or confidence, then you would respect them. For example, if I happen to be all dressed up in my suit or my long sleeve barong and I happen to go to a mall and I walk in confidently to the entrance, I look important. That's what the guard thinks. And they rarely, if I'm dressed up nicely, ever check on me. In fact, some of them actually think I'm a VIP and they actually salute me. It's a kind of a nice feeling. But there are other times I go to the mall and I'm wearing a baseball cap, a, a t-shirt, shorts and slippers. And I get a very different treatment. They think I'm a criminal, and they give me the full-body check for weapons. I've never, ever been saluted by the mall guards wearing T-shirts and shorts. In many ways, we do the same thing. Why do we do it? Because how we see someone through the lenses of our own bias determines how we respond and treat them. We do this with God. If we don't see God for who He really is, and we have somehow an obstructed view of who God is, then our response to Him is very different. As we continue our study in the book of Habakkuk this morning in our series entitled Love and War, through the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, we're going to want to see God for who He really is. And when we know who He really is, how then do we appropriately respond Because let me ask you this, my friends, when you think about God, or when He's referenced, do you give Him your full attention? When you think about God, do you salute Him to acknowledge His superiority over us? Do you honor Him? Do you respect Him? Turn to me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, as we take a look at verses 1 to 15 as we study God's Word this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. If you can remember our study from the previous weeks, Habakkuk had two questions that greatly bothered him. The questions of why God seemingly allowed sins to go unpunished, and why God seemingly allows evil men and women to succeed even temporarily in life. And God reveals His answers to these two questions to the prophet in a very unique way. And in response, God says that He will indeed punish people for sin, and He does not really allow evil men and women to succeed. And so Habakkuk the prophet is comforted. In fact, he is emboldened by God's answer that he, in chapter 3 of this book, gives a prayer of praise I just want you to think about something. When was the last time you prayed to God simply to praise Him? Praising Him for who He is, not what you need from Him, not even thanksgiving for what He's given you, a prayer that has nothing to do with you but simply pure praise. When was the last time? I'm sure for many of us it's been a while. But this is the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, a praise offering to God 
for who he really is. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, look with me. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigayanoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, as you read these verses to begin chapter 3, I'm sure the first question in your mind is, what in the world is Shigayanoth? Most scholars believe that this is an instruction for how this prayer is to be read or even sung. And in the root word of the Hebrew, it is to be read or sung with intense feeling. You're about to praise God for who He is. It is to be done with intensity. So the prophet opens his prayer in verse 2 by noting that he has received God's answers to his questions. And the answers that God has given him have left him in shock and in awe. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 2, it resulted in the prophet once again fearing God. And in this context, the idea of fearing God is a healthy respect of someone who deserves it. And so because Habakkuk realized that God's sovereign power was at work in disciplining Judah using the people of Babylon, through his powerful sovereign work, Habakkuk now healthily fears God. Here's the first thing I want you to realize, number one, if you're taking notes. Realizing God's sovereign power should cause people to fear Him. Realizing God's sovereign power should cause men and women to fear Him. It is in that healthy fear of God that we respect Him, knowing that He can do whatever He wants to do. It is in this healthy fear that the prophet Habakkuk asks God to do three things. And these are the only three petitions. These are the only three things that Habakkuk asked God to do this entire book. It is found in verse 12. Look with me. In view of God's sovereign power with a response of fear, the prophet first asked God that he would bring revival, note this, in the midst of the years. That God would bring revival to the people during the time he was disciplining them using the Babylonians. What Habakkuk was doing was he was asking God that his work would be accomplished. He was praising God that his work would be accomplished. Call your people to attention was his prayer request. You see, my friends, when there's often a healthy and right fear of God, revival comes naturally. You see, a lot of people in this generation think that somehow we'll love God more if we make God attractive that we make God all nice and warm and fuzzy feelings would be a part of our emotional connection to God. And then we would want to draw closer to Him. And there is an aspect of truth in that because God is indeed gracious and He's merciful and He is indeed loving. And that should draw us to want to know Him more. But in reality, many people, many of us, do not change Because in our own lives, there is no desire or urgency to change. If you go to business school, almost any business school in the world would ask you to read the book by John Cotter from the Harvard Business School entitled Leading Change. I've read it. It's a great book. 
And there, one of his principles for how to evoke change in a corporate sense or amongst people is that you must create an urgency for change. Because people don't want to change naturally. People just want to be who they are. And in their convenience, they change. But that's why you know when someone often gets sick terminally or when someone goes through a time of crisis, that's when they turn back to God. The urgency to change, to draw closer to God, often comes when we come to the understanding that we are to take God seriously. One of the great revivals in church history happened in America, happened in the late 1700s. And a lot of it was due to the preaching of a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Now, you may think that Jonathan Edwards was an amazing preacher, that he was eloquent, that he told funny stories, that he related well with the community, that he was a dynamic speaker. But if you were to read church history, you would find out that, in fact, Jonathan Edwards was quite boring when he spoke. He rarely ever looked up at his audience when he spoke. He simply read verbatim what he had written on a piece of paper. No illustrations, nothing. In fact, his sermons were actually not very appealing. I mean, his most famous sermon is entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's on your top ten list of sermons you would want to listen to. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, would you? Is that one of those sermons you want to listen to four or five times? Of course not. And yet somehow, when Jonathan Edwards preached those words from the Word of God, Before he finished, men and women in the pews were crying. So convicted by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Because finally they understood that how they were living was not consistent with what God wanted them to do. They were sinners in the hands of a God that was angry. Because suddenly there was an urgency to change. Revival swept throughout America. A revival often happens when people see that a sovereign, all-powerful God is at work, and they begin to take Him seriously. May that be the prayer that we have for our own congregation when we realize God's sovereign power should cause us to fear Him. There must be revival. I hope there is. The second petition from Habakkuk, to God in verse 2, that in view of God's sovereign power with a response of fear, he asked God that he would provide understanding for the people. Of course, this book would help in this regard as the people who would then be disciplined by the Babylonians would read his book to see what God was in fact really doing. Why did Habakkuk ask God to provide understanding for the people who were going through discipline? Because it's often easy to misunderstand God and why we believe He's rightfully angry. People who fear only for fear's sake will grow very bitter. Only people who fear with a right, valid reason will grow to respect the one who is in authority. Let me give you an example. How many of you grew up in families where your dad or your mom had 
really bad tempers. And they were just simply angry all the time. And you never understood why they were angry. They were just angry and mad. I'm sure many of you, in some way, became very bitter at them. You didn't respect them because they just were angry all the time. I remember uh, a few years ago, my daughter came up to me. And she had a serious talk with me. She said, Daddy, I have a question for you. I said, yes, honey, what is it? She said, Daddy, why do you get mad at Mommy all the time? In that instance, I said to her, a bit defensively, I don't get mad all the time, but I know that I do lose my temper every now and then at the home. And I asked her, honey, do you know why Daddy got mad in this instance? She said, yes. I said, was it justified? Was it okay that Daddy got mad? She said, yes, but still, you shouldn't get angry so quickly. I said, okay, honey, I'm sorry, I won't. But I need you to understand why Daddy got mad. I want to understand that her daddy doesn't get mad at mommy for no reason. Lest she grows very bitter towards me. But there is a valid reason, but it was also a wake-up call to me. In the very same way, the prophet asks that God would impart understanding, that as they were undergoing discipline, that they would understand that it isn't, it's not because God hated them. It's not because God took away His promises. It's simply because they needed to be disciplined. Fear of someone without justification leads to bitterness. But the prophet wanted the people to understand that God's wrath is absolutely justified and therefore to be feared with respect. The third petition from Habakkuk to God, also found in verse 2. Look with me. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, in view of God's sovereign power with a response of fear, the prophet asked that God would be merciful in the midst of His rightful wrath. It's there. There is love in the midst of His discipline. And the prophet simply wanted God to be gracious, to be merciful Habakkuk knew that the people deserved what they got. It was a rightful appeal to a sovereign God who could do whatever He wanted. And if He can do whatever He wants, would He be able to show mercy? You know, a child that is being disciplined knows why he or she is being disciplined. And most children or young people acknowledge that they probably deserve what they got. But thankfully, parents, because of their love, for their children don't really follow through with most of their threats. You know what I'm talking about. You parents in your anger promise that you're going to take away their iPads for the rest of the week, some, even for the rest of the month, only to give back the iPads to your children the next day. You get so angry with your children, you promise them that they'll never ever go out with their friends ever again, only to allow them to see their friends the next weekend. Now, I've had young people come and tell me, you know, Pastor, it's good that my parents are forgetful. They never remember what they threatened to punish me with. I often tell them, well, your parents may be forgetful, but as a parent myself, I don't think they are. And I tell our young people, I said, I want you to understand that when parents look at children, they look through the lenses of love. And they adjudicate their judgment through those lenses of love. And many times, parents are not forgetting 
their punishments, which the children do deserve. Many times parents look through the lenses of love and show mercy when they don't deserve any. That is the same way in which God looks upon us. He is a merciful God. And Habakkuk, in the midst of his fear and respect of God, asks that God would be merciful in the midst of his discipline. The second response is found in verse 3 to 7. In verses 3 to 7, it is a picture of the awesomeness of God. When was the last time you just sat back and thought about how awesome God was or in God is? Look at verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. Let me just stop here. What Habakkuk is doing is that he is setting a picture. He is picturing the awesomeness and the brilliance of the glory of God to that of a sunrise. A sun that rises up from the east. Teman is a town in Edom, and Mount Paran is a mountain on the opposite side of Teman. So it is picturing the Israelites as they leave Egypt in the Exodus, and they are traveling east, and they've been traveling all night, and right before them are these imposing structure, and right as at the break of day, the sun is beginning to peak over the horizon. That is the moment. And then we find the word Selah. Most often it's used in the book of Psalms. Most scholars believe this is a musical notation. That's why we believe that chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk was often sung. It's asking those who were reading and singing this chapter to stop, to pause. Because what is going to be said next requires that everyone takes a collective pause and then is prepared for what will be said. And what is revealed, look at verse 3. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. It's as if we are to pause at that moment when we see that the sun peaks over the horizon, and at the breaking of the day at sunrise, the beautiful colors begin to illuminate the entire sky. And what was once dark a few seconds ago suddenly jumps out in brilliant colors. His glory covered the heavens. And what is the response? The whole earth was full of His praise. The embodiment of the awesome magnificence of our God. Now, I know it's hard to picture this because I'm sure for many of you it's been a while since you've seen a sunrise Perhaps you can be challenged to do so one day, but this is a generation that wakes up way too late, and you often miss the sunrise, and you settle for the sunset. Now, I've seen both, and they're both very beautiful, but there is a big difference between sunset and sunrise, and throughout Scripture, isn't it interesting that most of the illustrations that talk about the glory of God speaks to the sunrise? as opposed to the sunset. Why? Now, the sunset is beautiful, but it goes from light to dark. Very romantic. But a sunrise goes from darkness to light. And it is in that illustration that God reveals Himself. 
and it is a truly magnificent sight. Just when it was pitch dark, and then that sun comes over the horizon, and then immediately the entire sky is filled with the brilliance of God's handiwork through light. It is a sight to see. I remember a few years ago on one of my trips to Mount Sinai in Egypt, we get up very early in the morning, near midnight, to climb the 2,285-meter-high mountain. We climb it early in the morning so that we can be at the summit to see the magnificent sunrise. I've climbed, up, climbed it up many a times, and I never get tired of climbing this spiritually significant mountain. There was one year, a few years ago, I remember leading a group up. When we got up to the summit, we waited. And then the sun came out. It peaked through the mountain peaks. And it illuminated the entire Sinai region, beautiful, with brilliant colors. If you've ever been to the Sedona Desert in Arizona, the Painted Desert, it is beautiful. And that is the Sinai. There were lots of oohs and lots of ahs. When you're with an Asian group, it gets quite noisy, as you would know. And so people were exclaiming how beautiful it was, how wonderful it was. And I remember what happened. There were other climbers with us of every, of every different nationality. And out of the darkness, I heard someone shout at us in the darkness, silence is also beautiful as well. Apparently, we were too loud. He was telling us to be quiet so that he could also experience the brilliance of this sunrise in silence. You know, I've never forgotten what he said. Because in many ways, when we are exposed to the awesomeness of God, He should not necessarily elicit vocal praise from us. God doesn't need us to affirm how awesome He is. But His awesomeness should so overwhelm us that it leaves us in stunned silence. If we cannot be in stunned silence at His awesomeness, then perhaps we do not know the depth of how great and majestic He is. Because throughout the Scriptures, if you go through the Scriptures, whenever men and women encounter God or the glory of God, like when Abraham met the Theophany, or when people saw the glory of God, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible said, they often were like dead men. They were silent. So taken aback by how amazing and brilliant God was that they couldn't speak. And here we are, when we talk about the awesomeness of God, we're just yapping all the time. So cool, so cool, so awesome. Maybe we do not know the depth of how truly amazing God is. You see, number two, I want you to understand something. Number two. Seeing or recognizing God's awesomeness should cause people to respect Him. Seeing God's awesomeness should cause people to respect Him. And sometimes that's in silence. Verse 4. His brilliance was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand and there His power was hidden the prophet continues his description of the awesomeness of God. The brightness of the Lord 
was like the sunlight, unable to be looked at. The power that can be seen from the flashing from his hands, perhaps in allusion to lightning, only but concealed the fuller capacity of God's power. Imagine that. Some of you are scared by the thunderous noise of a thunderclap. When you see a lightning storm, you are fearful. And yet the Bible says, in the most awesome of nature's display, it is only a fraction of God's total power. Verse 5, before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. Seems like quite an odd verse. But it's simply talking about that as God moves across the earth, as the sun rises and sheds more light across the world, pestilence and plague seem to follow. That means nothing is left unscathed. Nothing is untouched by God's awesome holiness and brilliance and grandeur. All the world has to acknowledge His greatness. And then verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. Their perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. As the sun is at its zenith, at its highest, here God is pictured as one who is looking over the entire earth. Everyone is startled and terrified because of the awesomeness of who He is. Let me just stop here. I was thinking recently this week. I think we've overused the word awesome nowadays. We've overused this word that the impact of this word no longer carries its significance. For example, we say, wow, this food is really awesome. When we really mean this food is very delicious. Or some young people would say, wow, this video game is awesome. When we really mean this video game was really engaging and fun. Or we say, well, my friend is really awesome. When we really mean he was a really good and faithful friend. I don't know what it is with the 21st century. Maybe we are stymied in our vocabulary that everything is awesome. I often joke when my kids tell me, Daddy, we're starving. No, you're not starving. People in Africa are starving. You're just really hungry. Anyway. Somehow, because food is awesome and video games are awesome and friends are awesome, God is also awesome. He's no different from any of the others. But when we know what this word means, it means awe-inspiring. It means breathtaking. It means overwhelming. Perhaps only God is really someone who is deserving of this word, awesome. So awesome is our God that He looks upon the world and the Bible tells us the immovable mountains and the ancient hills move and they hide because they grant deference to one, the Bible says at the end of verse 6, is everlasting. The mountains, the ancient hills, they've been there forever. But now comes the presence of God and priority and deference goes to Him and they move away. We celebrate that which was first. We built museums for the first chair, the first boat, the first Bible. There are no museums for things built second. And so Habakkuk reminds us 
that He is everlasting. He was there since the beginning. That's how awesome He is. He was there from the beginning, and the mountains and the hills move away in deference to the everlasting God. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Kushan, the Ethiopians, the Midianites were people who lived in the Sinai Peninsula. In both groups, the Bible is described as trembling when God revealed Himself. Now, if these people and nations tremble and respect the Lord, how much more are we? Especially in a greater way for those who claim to know Him. When we see God for who He really is, as an awesome God, we should tremble and shake. We should be speechless in the presence of such greatness. It should cause us to respect Him. Our third response is found in verses 8 to 15. In verses 8 to 15, there's now a change in description from the awesome appearance of God to His powerful acts in the world. What is our response? Let's take a look. Verse 8 and 9. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows, Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. I know poetry can be hard to understand, but here is a picture where in a rhetorical question, the prophet is affirming that God does disrupt the bodies of water. And when he disrupted the Red Sea by parting it, when he disrupted the Jordan River by parting it, what was its purpose? It was to save his people. Verse 8, you rode your chariot, note this, of what? Of salvation. It's not because God has nothing better to do, like Zeus or other gods who want to play and toy with people, and they're false gods. The living God, when He causes things to happen in our lives and in this world, does so to save His people. I need you to recognize that fact, that God always acts for the benefit of His children. Even in His discipline, it is for the benefit of His children. Even when we don't understand it, we do not comprehend it. Verse 9 pictures God as a knight on horseback riding to save the day. His bow is ready to defeat his people's enemies. Again, you see God's action plans are always for the benefit of his children, even when he would use people like the fearsome Babylonians to discipline his own children. Verse 10 to 12, the mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went. At the shining of your glittering spear, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. Once again, in these verses, the mountains stand trembling in response to the powerful acts of God. Even the sun and the moon are said, said to have stood at the commanding act of God. If God tells the sun and the moon, stay where you are, they do it. And this should remind you of what happened, if you remember the story in Joshua chapter 10. Remember what happened? The Bible tells us. Joshua asked for more time. 
that he would be able to defeat his enemies. So what does God do? God holds the sun still. Now I've read a few commentaries about this incident. And somehow these scholars are trying to explain how that can happen. Maybe it was an eclipse. Maybe it was a celestial phenomenon. Maybe it really wasn't the sun. My goodness. Because they say if the sun were to stand still, no longer rotating on its axis in the universe, then all the planets orbiting the sun in our solar system would drop out of orbit and crash together. My friends, you need to understand that when God causes the sun to stand still, it's called the miracle. There are no scientific explanations to miracles. What do you believe about God? Do you believe that your God, when you see Him for who He truly is, do you believe that your God can freeze the orbit of all celestial bodies like the sun and the moon so that Joshua can defeat his enemies. Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that, then your God is very small. He's not God at all in many ways. Because if he can't cause the sun to stand still and the outflowing of his powerful works, then maybe he can't raise dead people then maybe He can't provide eternal life. Oh, He can do, some of you think, simple miracles like letting the blind man see. But really? Causing the entire universe to stand still for those few hours so that Joshua could defeat his enemies. If you doubt the power of God to be able to do that, then in many ways you and I are no better as Christians than the skeptics who don't believe God for who He is. Because then how powerful is your God? Here is a God, the Bible tells us, where the sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. I believe that my God is able to do just that. And it brings comfort to my soul. Because when he's able to do so, verse 12, he tramples the enemies of his people because of his rightful wrath. Another reminder that God does these things to take care of our enemy problems for us. Verse 13 to 15. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to neck. Selah. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They come out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walk through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. Now don't get lost in the description of of poetic words. In verses 13 to 15, God wants us to know abundantly clear that when he displays his powerful acts, it is for the salvation of his people. Would you go to verse 13 and circle that phrase, underline it in your Bibles? He went forth, what? For the salvation of his people. Now, what a comfort that must be. 
that the acts of God are often to save us from ourselves and to save us from others. We may not understand it. I don't understand why things happen to people who are good or what I believe are good people. I don't understand. Why does God allow these things to happen? But God doesn't explain those things to us. He just simply says, I do these things for the salvation, for the good of my people. Look at that second phrase. For salvation with your anointed. God has been sending deliverers. And perhaps that should remind those who are reading it, perhaps to a Jewish audience, how God sent Moses as a deliverer to deliver Israel out of bondage. Or perhaps even a foreign ruler like Cyrus, who he put on the throne to allow the Jewish people to return back home after the exile. Or perhaps even Joseph, whose messed up life we thought, and if you have time, study the book of Joseph, if you don't understand what God is doing in your life, that God would use the injustice in the life of Joseph to save an entire nation from slave to prime minister in a span of a few minutes. Or perhaps pointing to the Messiah who saves all mankind from their sin. Whatever the case, God wants to make it abundantly clear to us that His powerful acts, everything that He does in this universe, in our daily life, because of His unconditional love for us, is for our benefit. It is undergirded by His love for us, His protection of His people. Number three, seeing God's powerful works should cause people to be at peace. Seeing God's powerful works should cause people to be at peace. I need you to understand something. If you know that God, in His actions, do things for our benefit, then we should sit back and relax. Even though the storms of life are raging all around us, we can be very much at peace. When you recognize the powerful work of God, does it scare you? When you see the powerful work of God in this world, does it scare you or does it give you peace? Let me give you an example. If you're flying in an airplane and you happen to fly through a storm cloud, as planes often do, and then as you fly through the storm cloud, your plane is going up and down in great turbulence, I'm sure for most of us, it frightens us deeply. Although you won't admit it, I bet you when your plane is going up and down, you're praying, Lord, Lord, if I die, forgive me of all my sins. I'm sure you pray that prayer. Lord, my work is not dead. I'm so sorry. I'll never do whatever I'm not supposed to do ever again. Of course, you never audibly speak it out because you don't want to look like you're a little child. But when that plane is going up and down, you're wondering, Lord, is this it? Is this it? Or instead, I wonder, probably very few of us have this experience where when the pilot flies through the storm cloud and that plane starts to violently shake and go up and down, you sit back and you say, you know what? God, what a great reminder that you control the forces of nature and I'm going to be at peace. Who thinks like that? But that is how we are to respond Because the reminder that when that plane is violently shaking caused by the storm cloud, we are reminded there is one 
who controls nature with just one word. And remember that time when he taught his disciples, the Son of God, showed his disciples this very lesson on the Sea of Galilee. When the storm suddenly raged, the one word of the Son of God, God himself, peace, be still. And immediately the Bible tells us the wind and the waves became dead calm. I hope it serves as a comfort for you to know that in the powerful work of God's hand, that He is able to control all things in this world, He should cause you and I to be at peace. So let the storms of life gather all around us. Let it. I will be at peace because there is nothing that is greater than the God who holds my life in His hands. And then we're reminded of one of the most powerful acts of the work of God. When He sent His Son, God Himself, to take on incarnate form in the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you and me. And He rose His Son from the dead, conquered death, And that powerful work, you should bring comfort to your hearts, knowing that if He has the power to resurrect His Son, He has the power to do the same for us. Seeing God's powerful works should not cause you to fear. It should cause you to be more at peace. If you're ever at the airport, observe the difference between a passenger who has in his hand confirmed tickets versus those who are flying standby. They're flying by chance to see if there happens to be an empty seat on this plane. Look at them. Observe them. The ones with the confirmed seat, what are they doing? They are reading the newspaper. They're playing games on their gadgets. They're chatting with their friends. They're sleeping. Notice those who are flying standby. What are they doing? They're pacing around. They're checking with the counter. Any seats available every 10 minutes or 5 minutes. They're anxious. They're worried. Now, what's the difference? The plane's going to take off at the same time. Your worrying won't add to your chances. And yet the difference in attitude for one who has a confirmed ticket and one who is flying standby is caused by the assurance factor. One is assured that they're going to take off with this ticket. One is unassured. Men and women, if you know that God loves you deeply and you know that His powerful works are not there to scare you but to assure you, then you and I should be some of the most relaxed people in the world. In fact, the Bible says very clearly in the New Testament, do not Worry. Yet many Christians do. Because we don't see God for who He really is. Our ticket to eternity is confirmed. It's confirmed. The Holy Spirit resides in your heart. That is your guarantee that if anything happens to you in this life, immediately at that moment, you are in the presence of God. That is the only way for men and women going through the hardships of life to understand 
where they can find peace. And yet Christians live as if they have no idea where they're going and they're so scared. I understand that. There are times I get scared and anxious as well. But what a reminder. We're not flying standby to heaven. We've got confirmed tickets. Seeing God's powerful work should cause people to be at peace. So my friends, as I close, do you see God for who He really is? Who is He to you? Because if you have the right perspective of God, then you may fear Him, you may respect Him, but you will certainly be at peace. That's why those who have an intimate walk with God, those who know God through the Scriptures which reveal Him, are so much in peace because while they have a God who they can respect and fear, they are at peace knowing He's fighting on their behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. What an assurance it is to me as well. There are times in my own life and in the Christian life where I don't understand what in the world you're doing. I'm scared. I'm anxious. But it's often because I do not see you for who you truly are. For the one who loves us unconditionally, that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. To the one who shows us grace and mercy. To the one who takes care of our enemies for us even when we don't acknowledge it. We are at peace because the immortal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign God is at work in my life to walk with me and to protect me. May these truths about who you are serve as an encouragement to our people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.